Well, hello, and welcome to episode 24 of the Bomb City Podcast. My name is Nick. This episode is my interview with Ryan Cochran, the creator of The Ham. Ryan created The Ham, the Jalopy Journal. He runs The Garage Journal. He's a really talented guy, a really excellent writer, and someone that I have a ton of respect for. I hope you guys dig it. I had a really fun time recording this conversation. So uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and thank you so much to Ryan for your time. Without further ado, here it is, episode 24, Ryan Cochran. Hello? Hello? Hey, is this Ryan? This is me. Is this thing working? Yeah, it looks like it. Awesome, man. Hey, thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to, to do this. I'm really, I've been really looking forward to this. Yeah, man. I've, I'm kind of a podcast nerd, and I've never <laughs> done one. This would be cool. Awesome, man. Well, hopefully this is a, a, a good experience for you. Right on. I keep sitting down to do research for this, and I keep finding myself into into the same... Uh, holes on the the ham and on the garage journal that I that I used to and I I was pre I was never like to- like super active on the ham I was always there to to read and get information and stuff but I always read the blog uh, Jalopy Journal and I think when I started uh, drifting off of that onto like to other forums and just you know, other things in general I think the garage journal was was maybe just starting out or I just hadn't heard of it too much. But I, I'm clicking through it today, and it's it's really like a, a sophisticated blog. I was watching the video of you making the 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 BF MFT uh, the workbench. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, woodworking kind of turned into a hobby. My uh, my my dad used to he woodworked quite a bit, and I never really got into it when he was doing it. And then he passed away and left me all these tools, and I you know my wife needed cabinets or what have you. Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of started exploring it, and uh, it's actually a lot of fun. Um, you know, I'm used to working on cars where you get all dirty and grimy, and <laughs> this stuff is pretty cool because you can do it for 30 minutes to an hour and then go eat dinner or something, you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah, that's awesome. It's One thing that, that jumped out at me pretty immediately is, uh, you know, the the blogs and the forum and stuff are largely you know centered around traditional stuff but you're you are like embracing a bunch of high-tech uh stuff to build at least to to build this this bench top like i'm seeing cad i'm seeing uh like cnc like the the big gantry router and even yeah, the little one like you have there the garage journal kind of has a, a fairly large community of people that are into vintage tools mm-hmm. um and i think a lot of that is carryover from the jalopy journal those guys just kind of, you know, carried over onto it. But it's never really been focused on vintage tools. Um, I mean, we review modern tools. Um, you know, most of our advertisers are modern tool companies. So at least in the, in the, it's funny in the, like in my shop, like if I have an option to buy a vintage tool that, like, I feel like it'll work just as well as a new, new tool. And a lot of times they work better, like table saws and band saws and drill presses. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, like the consumer level stuff from the 30s and 40s is way better than the industrial new stuff you can get now. So, like a lot of that stuff, I still use old stuff. My table saw is from like 1943, um, and my drill press and band saw and all that stuff, it's all old stuff. So, that's another hobby to get into. It's a lot of fun is restoring those old woodworking tools. I did. Uh, I actually just finished up uh, my uh, table saw about a year ago. That was a 40s era tool, and it, that was like one of the nicest restoration experience ever because everything <laughs> was just made so well, and just 
went together how it's supposed to go together and the tolerances are perfect and it was just it was fun yeah, yeah i've noticed one big thing with with old tools that people don't really uh, realize with some of the the newer stuff that's designed that's designed to ship you know you pay for rigidity and with rigidity you get precision and accuracy so those old yeah. tools with, with a giant cast iron frame you know that that yep. doesn't really wear out with time yeah and it's heavy and it's a pain in the ass to deal with but once <laughs> it's set up where you want it set up and it's pretty hard to beat yeah that's awesome so as yeah. as far as the like the higher tech sort of solutions do you see that um like is there overlap with that and and building a, like more traditional cars or hot rods you know i've seen both sides like my brother keith tardell his shop is just down the road from me mm-hmm. and he uses a lot of you know old tools and old-fashioned stuff but then at the same time he's having like this crazy flathead intake catted and machined and casted off-site and so he's he uses both quite a bit i know there's lots of guys out there that are you know using cad and um in them in their process of building cars and then you know then there's burn tardell who i honestly don't think he has a tool made after like 1960 <laughs> So I, I think it's different strokes for different folks. And, and a lot of it, I think, is how they were brought up in the in the show, what they were using. Yeah, yeah. I know uh, a, a friend of mine, he has another another podcast, actually, Wheels of Confusion. Uh, my friend Bob, he's a uh, he does laser metrology. So he, yeah. he 3D scans big stuff. He works in aerospace now. But he was working for uh, for Rod Emery over at his uh, his Porsche place there in the desert in here yeah. here in California and that's it's pretty interesting like they they use a lot of you know traditional sheet metal tools but when it comes to reproducing a compound curve or some crazy uh, body line they they'd scan it then reverse engineer it to a model and then they'd take it from there and like print stuff and cut out the ribs and start doing the traditional metal working I feel like Rod Emery is like on a different level than everybody <laughs> else yeah like he's in a different stratosphere some of the stuff that guy does He's, I mean, and just the legacy of his family and the fact that he went that direction and now he's doing Porsches is just, I mean, that dude built like a spaceship. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the monster energy drink, the guy that jumped out of the, the pod for the highest skydive ever. Oh, the, the Red like, Bull thing. Yeah. yeah. That dude built the, Rod built the pod. Oh, wow. Which, which is basically a spaceship. Yeah. I mean, he's unbelievable. I don't know him well, but everything I see him do just, beyond it's always interesting where where people end up like uh you know his, like you said his his family history is you know it's right there with with barris and and all the the other big names I actually don't feel like they ever got as much uh, attention as they should have yeah you know, at least when people are, are looking back um but it's really neat to see like like I, I think the first time i saw one of the the emery with the outlaws the the 356 yeah. So, right. I think I saw it on Top Gear or something like that, and then I worked yeah. back for from there to get to the to the traditional custom stuff because I just hadn't seen it before. And then I found, um, I think Winfields was working on a an old Valley Customs car that was going back through there or something. Possibly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the thing about Valley Custom is, in a way, they sort of started the more modern custom going into the 1950s. So, I mean, they, they kind of predate Barris in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it, this is a completely subjective thing, but I'm a much bigger fan of Valley custom cars than I am Barris cars. 
I just I like that simple, clean line. I mean, they took basically stock Detroit cars and made them look more like their concept drawings. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they were just cleaner, yeah. lower, and just simpler. And I, I, there's not a car they built I don't like. And I mean, the same goes for Rod. He just sort of carried it on. That guy, he just blows me away. Yeah. It's also really fun to watch him do really risky stuff with super rare and expensive cars. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I know I'm sort of in the Porsche world and there's this guy, um, that was building a 964, which is like a, I believe they started making those in 90 to 93 or something, but it's the last of the classic 911 body style. Mm -hmm. And this guy wanted to louver the top of the curved fenders (laughs) and uh, rod took on the project. And like two (laughs) days later, it, done these perfect row of louvers over a compound curve and it's like god i don't even know where you'd begin to do that (laughs) he's just amazing oh i was uh i was gonna ask one one thing i was reading in some of the the earlier jalopy journal things you were talking about your dad and you brought him up earlier with the woodworking but he was uh, uh it seemed like he was pretty active in uh in racing is that is that yeah, my dad grew up racing cars quite a bit, and then uh, he went to medical school and became a doctor, and he was the the basically the doctor on staff for VDS Racing in Midland, Texas, uh-huh. and VDS Racing was ran by a guy named Franz Weiss, and Franz Weiss is the winningest IndyCar builder of all time, um, and so my whole childhood was going to Indy races and, you know, stuff like that, and there's there's... I grew up in Midland, Texas, and there's this crazy amount of racing heritage there. There's a racetrack there that's a private racetrack called Rattlesnake Raceway, and that's where Carroll Shelby took the Cobra for its first tests. Um, that's where all of VDS did all their testing, and I grew up racing go-karts on that little track. Huh. And so it's it's the, the amount of history that's in that little town. Jim Hall, Chaparral Racing, he's from there. That's like the sucker car. Um, the Periscope car, Jim Hall is basically, he's the guy that turned SCCA racing on its head with some of his innovations. They had to like change rules for like a decade <laughs> because of all the crap he would come out and dominate with. Um, he was the first guy to do active aerodynamics too, but all that stuff, it came from Midland, Texas, which is where I was, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say lucky enough to grow up there, <laughs> but that's where I grew up. So I was around it quite a bit. Which that that really kind of shaped me. In fact, the way the Jalopy Journal and the Ham all got started was, I grew up around all VDS racing and all stuff and racing go karts, and I got invited to go to racing school in Europe. Um, and so I was sixteen, seventeen years old, and I was in racing school, and that developed into uh, job racing cars there. And I was in Paris, France. I was seventeen or eighteen years old. And ironically enough, a 34 Ford high boy pulled up, um, just outside a cafe. And I had no idea what it was. I didn't know it was a Ford or I had no clue what this thing was. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with it. And I just started researching from there. And then the next thing I knew, one of the things I did when I left to go to racing schools, I promised my mom, I, when I turned 18, I would come back, um, and go to college. And so when I went back to go to college, that's when basically my freshman year is when I started the Jalopy Journal. And at the time, you couldn't even have images on the Internet. It was just all text. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
from there, I found a 38 Ford, and I didn't know how to build it, and the message board started, and basically guys from California on the message board teaching me what to do. <laughs> and it was like, I mean, there was like 30 or 40 of them for six or seven years. Mm. Um, but that's that's kind of how it all got started. But yeah, it, all from France, <laughs> Yeah, that's weirdly wild. enough. And I, I think it's like relatively illegal to modify cars in France, too. Yeah, I know it's a lot harder. Yeah. A lot harder. Um, I, I spent some time with some friends in Australia and just to see this stuff, they basically have to build a car twice to have a traditional hot rod on the road. They build it first for all the road going tests and all the huge taillights and fenders and mm. brakes and all the stuff that it has to do just physically to pass this test. And then once they pass the test and they get the rego is what they call it, <laughs> they go back and they take all the crap off the car and make it look right. I mean, it's crazy the stuff that, you know, people overseas have to do to participate in such a silly thing. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to travel and, and check out car culture outside of uh, California, really. Uh, in fact, that was one of the reasons I was looking to, to talk to someone out of state. Because I feel like I've, I've gotten a really sort of isolated view of, of car culture here in California. And uh, I, everything that I hear about Texas is is positive i haven't heard one person that drove to the lone star roundup and regretted it yeah it's a pretty good show it's gotten huge but it's pretty awesome it's a austin is a very unique place um because the car scene is really good here um but and there's a lot of people a lot of people and a lot of different cliques just like anywhere else but the weird thing or the unique thing about austin is even if people don't like each other they get along. They pretend to like each other. You know what I mean? So there's never, there's very little of that social drama that you'll see in Southern California sometimes or things like that. It's, it's a very laid back, friendly environment, which I think creates sort of a unique car culture here. But you interviewed Kobe, right? Yeah. That dude is the smartest, <laughs> most just intelligent, just intelligent, creative, as far as like having his thumb on the pulse of the scene. That's the guy. Oh yeah, Kobe's he's 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 the whole thing, right? He's he's smart. He builds incredible cars, and and he's got like a really interesting history with it. Yeah, that was that was really fun. I was really glad to sit down and do that. Got so much respect for that guy. Yeah. He's so, I just love him, and his books. Oh, his books are just perfect. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've done a couple of books. I know how hard that is, man. He just he pulls it off and makes it look effortless. <laughs> But yeah, you should try to get to the roundup. It's a it's a it's a neat deal. Or really, anytime Austin's a good place to go. Sometimes I feel like it's better to come when it's not the roundup because there's less traffic and you can get into the Continental Club and it's a great place to be. Yeah. Is that one of the big like uh, hubs? It, it's hard for me to figure out what's what's what in Texas. It's so big. Yeah. So, I mean, I would call Austin probably the hub of the at least the traditional car scene. I mean, there's guys in Dallas and there's lots of guys in Houston as well. But as far as like shows and, you know, the 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 main events of the state, I would definitely say Austin. That's cool. And a lot of that's due to there's a guy here named Steve Wertheimer. Um he owns the Continental Club. Um and then he does the the Lone Star Roundup with Brian Otter and Will Muntz and uh and those guys, they, they kind of started the Renaissance movement here in Austin. All great guys too. So, but it's it's a it's definitely something you should experience. It's good. Yeah, it sounds like fun. I've got some family out in Houston. I, I think I've spent four or five days of my life in Texas, 
I think it was like yeah. 100 degrees and raining and there was lightning. <laughs> yeah. It was something else. Yeah. Houston's weather kills me. It's too humid there for me. Yeah. Yeah, it was nuts when I was there, middle of the summer. I'm trying to think what else about Texas would be interesting as far as the podcast. Um, there's also some smaller shows here and around Austin that are pretty cool. Um, but it's just like, I, to me, the best thing about living in Austin is not the events at all. Mm-hmm. To me, the best thing is like hot rod breakfast once, you know, the first Sunday of every month or whatever, where there's just like 10 or 15 of you meet and eat breakfast or lunch or whatever and drive your cars. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, and there's lots of that. Just about every weekend, there's some little get together, which is kind of cool. It seems like a lot of that stuff has been popping up lately. Like the, the cars and coffee thing is is relatively big out here which and that's like yeah. a huge change from the the lull that i grew up in like i i, I went to high school like the early 2000s and mm-hmm. i i feel like i was right like when the internet was coming up and like it, it was the intersection of people like not taking their cars out to cruise anymore but also there wasn't like a, there weren't strong online communities around yet where people could find each other so sure. it was it was like a bunch of us hanging out outside of concerts and stuff like that up here yeah, I uh, I was at the Roadster show. This was six or seven years ago, and it was the it was Sunday after all the awards and stuff, and we were getting ready. Like it was me and three other guys, and we were getting ready to leave. And as we're leaving, my buddy's Roadster, the the Stromberg's flood, hmm. and so we all pull over and we're like beating on them with screwdriver handles <laughs> and stuff. And these two dudes on motorcycles pull up, and you can tell they're like, "Crap, we missed it. The show's over." And so I guess it's like a consolation prize. They start looking at my buddy's cars and they're walking around. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, man, that looks like Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I start looking closer. I'm like, holy shit, that is Keanu Reeves. Wow. And that dude, like, he went to dinner with us. It was amazing. Like, he was the coolest guy. <laughs> but, like, only that could happen in California. Yeah, that's crazy. Straight, yeah, he was straight up just a regular guy. Huh. I don't know. I get starstruck. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> me too. We used to, my my wife and, and mother-in-law used to vend at car shows and tattoo shows and stuff like that. And I, like, it seemed like once a show, like, I don't know, some some beatnik who was like a god to me, like Jack Rudy would come by or something. I would just freeze. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to, yeah. to do very good in the booth. But That yeah. dude intimidates me now and I know him. <laughs> <laughs> beatniks are cool. So, like, Dennis McPhail, he's an artist from Wichita. It's a beatnik. He's one of my closest friends. I love that guy to death. Man, I, I'm a huge fan of his art. I don't don't know him as a person, but yeah, he he's really really talented. In fact, I got a bunch of his his stuff up on the wall in the room I'm talking to you in now. Yeah, he's a. This was uh, probably 25 years ago, and the Jalopy Journal in the Ham. It was still like 30 or 40 of us, mm-hmm. and I got a phone call in my college dorm, and he's like, "It was Dennis. I didn't know who he was." He's like, "Hey, we're going to this car show in Arkansas. I saw you were local. You should come with us." And I'm like, right on. So I got my girlfriend, who's my wife at the time, or my my <laughs> girlfriend at the time, wife now. This was our first date, basically. And uh, Dennis met it, met us right outside of Oklahoma City, and then we drove. I think that it was in I think it was in Arkansas where the car show was, and that was my like we, my introduction to Dennis. And he had this Galaxy, and we're driving to the show, and the Galaxy breaks down, 
And he's got his two little bitty kids with him at the time. So my girlfriend babysits the kids while we're trying to fix his wheel cylinder on his car on the side of the highway. <laughs> and it, like we've been like really close ever since. But I've I've been been through some adventures, countless trips to California with Dennis. Um, yeah, we've we've gotten in a lot of trouble together. <laughs> he's a good dude. I, I have Dennis's very first tattoo. Yeah, it's the only tattoo I have. <laughs> But like he was practicing on a grapefruit, and then went to my arm. <laughs> it's it's literally the only tattoo I have. But he did it, and it, he did it. We were in Wichita, and his buddy had this. He called it the Go Away Garage, and it was like a mechanic shop during the day, and then turned into a nightclub at night. <laughs> and we're upstairs in the office where he's giving me this tattoo, and like all this crazy shit just goes down while he's giving me the tattoo and I'm like nervous and halfway passing out. I mean, it was just, it was nuts. <laughs> Mitch, that was the guy's name that owned the go away garage. He was a good guy too. <laughs> that was, that was fun back in the late nineties. There wasn't a lot of us into it. So we, we were all looked at like freaks kind of. <laughs> and I was a, like, I like I was I mean, freshman to senior year in college. I was full on greaser, dude. I had the haircut, the whole deal. <laughs> wow. I don't feel like there's that as many young people that do it anymore. It scares me. Yeah, you know, I I can't tell. Like I I'm relatively removed from the the outside world right now between work and home stuff, but uh Yeah. the like I do like a the the car subreddits. Like I, I don't know if you go on Reddit, but it I think the age there is like significantly lower than I expected. And yeah. uh it's really interesting to see people building cars now, like people getting their first project on the road now because they have all the information they could ever want. You've got a huge yeah. aftermarket now that you didn't 10, 20 years ago. And you've got you know, Craigslist and eBay, and it, it looks like so much easier to, to get started now. But they're, yeah. they're not doing with it what I would have expected. And kids are building like, uh, you know, like 90s cars or like the C10 trucks are, are really big. Yeah. And uh I I don't see a lot of traditional hot rods, although I do see that the the term rat rod has become ubiquitous enough that almost everyone knows what that means, which is yeah. you know good and bad but interesting nonetheless. Yeah. I think a lot of it like like when we first started, which makes me sound old, I'm 43. <laughs> But like when back in the in the nineties, we didn't have all that information, and and I think the biggest part is we didn't have the aftermarket, yeah. so that forces people to build cars in a more traditional style. If you're rebelling against the the whole Boyd thing, and in a way, I think that helps some of the cars of the era, because I mean, early Fords didn't have aftermarket parts for the most part, you know, those early hot rods. Mm -hmm. So I, I, some of those cars built in that era were more casual and felt better to me. Whereas now, you know, I mean, God, it used to be such a pain in the ass to get your Strombergs rebuilt. Yeah. And now you can just buy brand new ones that are way better than, you know, an old shitty rebuilt carburetor. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's a, that's a bad example because I'm thankful as hell that those Strombergs exist, but there's other parts where you're just like, man, rather than a super bell dropped axle, it'd been way cooler if you had a Dago or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that has some of it to do some, and a lot of it too. It's just like, man, I've got a daughter that's 14 and sometimes I, I don't even think she wants a car. She's fine with Ubering when she gets old enough, you know, Yeah. 
or what have you. And so I think it's not as big of a deal to get a car when you're a kid anymore, it seems like. Yeah. So I, American car culture in general is taking a hit there. Yeah, that, that's a good point. When I was a kid, I mean, you, you bought a car to get away from your parents. You know? Yeah. Was, you could yeah. get to work, you could, you could pick up your girlfriend, and you could be on your own. And yeah, yeah. I, I guess you don't, uh, you have a lot of alternatives now. Yeah, I mean, a high school kid, like when I was in high school, if you got in trouble, your parents took away your car. Mm-hmm. And that was hell. Now you can take away their car and they're fine with it. If you take away their phone, that's where <laughs> they freak out. Yeah. So that's long term. I mean, the whole thing just scares me because it's just like, I can slowly feel like all my buddies are dying, you know, that have been around forever. And who's there to take their spot? Yeah. Like once we're done with this, that makes me nervous. But I don't know. Like I can remember when we first started going to like NSRA car shows or what have you, when this whole Renaissance traditional hot rod movement started, <clears throat> we'd make fun of the old guys in their lawn chairs and we'd be doing burnouts and they'd be so annoyed with us. Mm-hmm. And I just wish there was some young group out there annoying the hell out of us. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like doing stuff we disapproved of and, yeah. So, I don't know. Even if it was some guy putting electric motors in 32s, I'd be cool with that. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? There's just not <laughs> much of that going around. And the price of cars, man, especially it seems like in the last year, really tanked. Yeah. So maybe that'll be enough to spawn more interest once the prices get lower. Because, I mean, it is. I mean, even a Model A Coupe's expelled these days. So. Yeah. Have you seen a a difference on the ham with stuff like that over the past yeah i I definitely think we haven't lost a lot of members although facebook and instagram and stuff like that definitely affected it Mm -hmm. um but i feel like our definitely the average age is older yeah for sure um which is which is awesome for content in a lot of ways but depressing when i think about the future (laughs) so i try to foster as much as i can like younger folks but no, message boards in general, you know, it took a huge hit with Facebook and Instagram. And I always hold out hope that people will read the terms of service of Facebook and stop using it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was actually on the board of Instagram for a very short while. Oh, wow. You know, they, uh, it was before they got bought by Facebook. And uh, they started ready to be acquired by Facebook and the turn and the TOS, they changed it for like a week to a Facebook friendly TOS. <laughs> and it was insane. It was like my insight into how all that works. And I've, I, I got rid of my Facebook account that day and I've never had one since. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy what they collect, but I, I, I'm young people don't care. So yeah, yeah, I don't think young people really use Facebook. I, I don't, I've never yeah. been on it. Yeah. But, I think it's mostly old farts, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's it's kind of weird. Like, there's some technology that you, you see it and you assume it's going to be around forever, but it turns out to only have existed for a really short period of time, like uh, like landline phones. Like, yeah. those came into existence and came, like, fell to obscurity within what, uh, less than 100 years. Yeah. And I feel like, like, when I was a kid, I, there there were some like older nerd kids that I was like friends with through like movies and, and hanging out and they had a, a bulletin board system, like an old BBS. Yeah. And back then like you would, you know, you get someone's phone number and you dial into it with a modem 
and it had their computer had to be on for you to to connect to it. Yeah, and then you could chat with people if they were directly on it at the time. And there's there, you know games and forums, and there's like a like a early classified thing on there, or you could spend like you know twelve hours downloading a a picture. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it feels kind of weird to watch like the the start of the, these online forums, sort of I guess not really close because I feel like in the comments on you know Instagram or I would imagine Facebook, it's the same sort of conversations, but it is weird watching this like uh, gap technology sort of change or, or fade out. Yeah, and though really, I mean, so many of those forums got bought by larger holding companies to put ad dollars on. Mm. And there's there's very few left that are independently owned, and it's mainly the ones that are the ones that are still around are stuff like Jalopy Journal, McGraw's Journal, where you need sort of a longer format. Mm-hmm. I mean, because otherwise they're obsolete in a lot of ways. Yeah, and thank God I don't do it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I actually sold a forum about ten years ago. I had one called the Jockey Journal, which was motorcycles. I remember that. Yeah, and I just I I in college I worked my way through college working at a motorcycle shop, mm-hmm. and like I liked building a bike. I hated riding one, and I got <laughs> it was one of those things where don't make your hobby your work because I I mean I got to where I hated them, mm-hmm. and then I bought that forum with another friend of mine. Or I didn't buy it; we started it together, and I did it for like three or four years, and I was just I couldn't do it, and I sold that one, and that that experience of selling it, I sold it to some Canadian company. And they, I mean, oh, it was an awful experience. And after that, I was like, yeah, I'm not selling any forms. <laughs> That's no fun. My my career, actually, I went to school at University of Oklahoma. And then after I got out of graduate school, I moved to Kansas City and worked at an ad agency for about four years. And then from there, I just worked at startups. And uh, we did a, a, a friend of mine did a startup here in Austin, and I moved here to do that startup. And we sold that after a couple of years. And after that, I was like, I don't think I want to build things to sell anymore. I'd done it so many times and the hours are so bad. And when you're done, you're left with nothing. Like you don't feel like you actually created anything, if that makes any sense. And like, I don't know, you sort of, you feel worthless in a way. And that's why I started doing the Jalopy Journal and the Garage Journal and the Ford Barn full time. Um, Cause at least I felt like I was providing a service that's cool. I, I didn't know you were doing all that full time though. That's that's really awesome. That's like the dream, right? Yeah, I've been doing it full time for I'm gonna guess thirteen years. Oh wow. And this is the twenty sixth year of the Jalopy Journal. That's crazy. I bought the garage journal. I didn't start it. I bought it about twelve years ago, maybe thirteen years ago. And uh at the time it only had like three hundred members or something. But I was building a shop at the time, and I fell in love with the forum, and the guy wanted out, and so I just sort of took it over. But that 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 one's been a lot of fun, though. But, um, the Garage Forum, it's cool because it's such a way bigger audience, obviously, because it's mm-hmm. I mean it's guys into hot rods, guys into woodworking, guys into I mean all different kinds of guys, and so long as you keep them off of politics, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. But man, as soon as that thing gets to politics, those people turn into animals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I literally, I, I spend half my day deleting political crap on forums. Yeah. And the other half I spend uh, 
answering emails about what their passwords are. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, that's a, and it's like there's a there's a link right there. I forgot your password, but <laughs> yeah, that's my life. Yeah, God, I was the uh, I was an admin on the the Los Boulevardos forum for a while, and that's yeah. that's a lot of what we dealt with too. But uh, yeah, what what you were saying with politics. It's so tricky being a, a moderator or an administrator on a forum where you're, you know, you're yep. providing a space for people to talk and you know, you've certainly got your own uh, beliefs and values and morals and stuff, but there, you, it's really hard deciding like what's acceptable content, what's not acceptable content and what, what do you censor? I mean, did, did you, how do you, uh, how do you think through that? So like our biggest rule is no politics and no religion. Mm -hmm. That's our main rule. And a lot of times the Jalopy Journal, like it's been around so long and I feel like we've got our fingerprint, just the, our DNA basically embedded in it so much that people know mm -hmm. um, they don't cross the line very often. Um, the Garage Journal is different because those a lot of those members are there to build a garage and then once their garage is but they won't be around until they have a question about a tool or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the, someone will make what seems to them to be a harmless, you know, remark about who happens to be president or, you know, some political statement mm -hmm. of sorts, under, kind of almost like under their breath. And then someone will take offense to that and they'll jump on it. And so what happens a lot of times is I'll just delete as many posts that, you know, all the posts that are that lean a political way in the conversation and whatnot. And then I'll get emails or private messages from both sides accusing me of being, you know, <laughs> a fascist conservative or a raging liberal. <laughs> and so it's like, I, I take it from both sides. I think the key to it, and in a lot of ways, I feel like it's the key to our, like our, what's going on in our country right now is no one seems to be able to see, have a perspective from the other side. You know what I mean? Like, understand why that person's conservative, understand why that person's liberal. Like, no one seems to be able to really put themselves in the other person's shoes, and that creates all this, like, strange conflict. And it's definitely been worse on the Garage Journal in the last couple of years. Yeah. So, I don't, without getting into any political crap, it's, it, it just, it, it feels like there's a lot of that going on. Sure. I, maybe, related to what you just said about the uh you know people will post their garage build stuff and then bounce off where the ham was more of a community do you feel like maybe that yeah. has something yeah. to do with it like they yeah. don't know who yeah, they're talking really, to really good point yeah and uh, a lot of the jalopy, jalopy journal guys are friends in real life too mm -hmm. so they i mean all that stuff's hashed out and out of the way and just like i think about our clique here in austin like dude we have like i'm thinking right now my buddy norm who's 77 i believe or 76 he's kind of a godfather of austin hot rodding and he's like everybody's grandfather in our little hot rodding group and he's a i mean he's a like six foot five cowboy conservative <laughs> as they come and you know he's best friends with reggie hill who's kind of like he's a black dude that i mean he's he's where like if anyone has any advice on life in general they go to reggie mm -hmm. And Reggie and Norm couldn't be any different, but they're best friends. Hmm. That's cool. Um, and there's a lot of that in our group, and it's awesome. But it, it's it's funny that in the hot rod world you can see that 
because these people are close enough to understand what their values are despite their political beliefs, despite the religion or what have you. Mm -hmm. But if you get into an environment more like the Garage Journal where these guys are there for a singular purpose, they're not there for the community. They're there to get something done, to get some advice or get a deal on a tool or what have you. There's no motive to have that kind of knowledge or to be deep enough into somebody else's life to understand them or have their perspective. And that shit can get pretty deep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We just about a week ago, there was a big conversation on the Garage Journal about how to get people to stop putting political comments on their religious comments. Mm -hmm. And like you'd see these guys that for the past five years, I've been deleting their posts because they're posting something political, which happens to be exact opposite of my political beliefs. But then you'll see this incredibly just well thought out post about why people shouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's like, damn, just stop and read what you just wrote. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting for sure. And I I bitch about it because it's the only part of my job I don't like, like the rest of my job is a dream. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been pretty lucky. So, I mean, I guess you got to bitch about something. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's, there's always been weird outlier things of owning a message board. Um, We've had, We've had people like write their suicide notes on the forum and it usually happens at like, you know, two or 3 AM. And Mm -hmm. I have my phone set up where if it has a certain amount of reports, like a reported post, Mm -hmm. my phone will ring. So like 2 AM, my phone rings, I'm freaking out thinking my mom's something's happened with my mom or what have you. And it's one of these deals. And then it becomes like, Oh crap. So you got to trace the guy's IP. You got to find out where he posted it. Um, call the police station there and then they have questions you can't answer and it, it gets so scary and freaky right. that's happened at least twice I think three times and it's stuff like that that you can't imagine as like a, someone that runs a message board that you'd be faced with and they, but you are and it's like how the hell I don't even know how to handle something like that I mean it, there's there's been weird stuff like that through the years that are in, that's interesting to talk about but at the time it's just absolutely terrifying yeah so yeah it's it's always freaky (laughs) yeah um how'd you get into podcasting oh yeah um i i started listening to a lot of podcasts when i was going to school um and then when i got out of school i had like a two-hour commute so i was just like burning through them and uh I really just got hooked on the format. Like I grew up, my dad would put on, you know, sports radio all the time when I was a kid. So talk radio was something I grew up with. Yeah. And, uh, and when I was listening to, uh, I think Mark Marin had Robert Williams on one day and like, I was listening to him talk and like Mark Marin's, I think one of the best interviewers of all time, but he he didn't know what to talk to him about. And I was like sitting there in the car, just like pounding the dash, like, Oh, you got to ask him about this. You got to ask him about that. It was driving me nuts. I was like, fuck, someone should start a podcast from this corner of the, of the car world. And, you know, just start, start talking to people. Like, like I said, I was a vendor for a long time. And so we'd show up on, you know, setup days at car shows and meet people and like hang out and get to know them. And you know, not only does this, you know, traditional hot rod or, or custom car low riding scene have like really incredible cars, but the people that build them are just as fascinating. Oh and yeah. So I tried to push a friend into hosting this for for a while, but no one else wanted to do it. So I figured I could I could take it on and 
you know, figure it out as I go. So, yeah, that's so the. What podcast do you listen to? Uh, I'll plug my buddy's podcast, even though they they don't record too often. Wheels of Confusion. That that's a fun one. And then uh, Roy Boy from uh, from Kansas has a good car one. But that guy's than, amazing. I didn't even know he had one. I'll be damned. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, he he gets some really good guests on there. It's fun again listening to people outside of California. He's a great guy. Yeah, we we chatted a little bit. He seems like a real cool dude. His his yeah. fifty cards in fifty states was like he podcasted oh, the whole yeah. thing. It was really really neat. I'll be down. I you know, I'm a podcast junkie, but until I got that message from you, I have never even thought to look for like hot rod podcasts. <laughs> I'm like a true crime guy. Yeah. Oh, my like wife criminal, loves that. Oh, man. Uh, criminal, um, uh, S-Town. Oh, my God. That's best podcast ever. This American Life, obviously. I like Radio Lab. That's cool. But, like, all those, I don't know. I mean, every day I was listening to a podcast. I've listened to two this morning already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. I'll have to check some of those out. That's cool. I, it's it's funny though that like I'm so into podcasts, but I'd never even thought to look. I think I've seen uh, there's a comedian that has a car podcast. Uh, can't remember his name. It, it was like one of the more popular. Adam Carolla. Oh yeah, is that his name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, from a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, but past that, I'd never even thought to look. Now I've got a rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> there's some good ones. It's it's kind of. Kind of neat, like it's an interesting space to be in right now because there's really not one like uh, major podcast that jumps out above above the rest. And I, yeah. I like, you know, I I grew up reading like punk rock zines and stuff like that. So the ones that are a little rough around yeah. the edges are familiar to me. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean that's that's the Jalopy Journal. <laughs> <laughs> I have a buddy that talked for years about making one, and he's a he's a lead singer in a in a punk band actually, and he has this amazing voice. But I don't think he actually ever did it. Yeah, it's cool. It's fun. I mean, man, like the, the this this interview is a good example. The excuse to get to talk to someone that I that I'm really interested to hear from is it's fantastic. You know, it's yeah, it's really fun. And I've I've learned a lot doing this. Like not only like talking to to people. Like I think we recorded two three hours at Winfield's shop. Just cool. Pulling stories out and and. You know, hanging out at Winfield's shop. How cool is that? And then, yeah. like the when you listen to yourself record these things, and you go back later and you listen to what you said, you think more about how you could have said it differently. It really is is a pretty. It's a very unique experience. I'll say that. I know what we should do. We should talk about people you should interview. <laughs> sure. I know lots of folks. Um, Keith Tardell one would be hilarious. Yeah. Because that dude is funny, and nobody knows him, really. Um, who yeah. else? His dad would be pretty interesting, but probably short. Yeah. His dad's <laughs> out here, right? Is he like Santa Rosa-ish? Am I right? Yeah, Santa Rosa. Okay. Yeah. Um, who else would be good? Oh, Bob Owens. Okay. He owns a junkyard in Wellington, Texas. It's Owen Salvage, right? And, yeah. And he's just got this amazing accent, super smart, just crazy friendly. Um, he'd be awesome. Dennis McPhail would be great. Who else? Um, Brian Bass would be good, just in the sense of 
he's pretty media savvy. Hmm. So mm. he'd probably come prepared with like notes and shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh-huh. Who have you been trying to get? Um, you know, I've been like pretty... me. This is interesting content to hear like hear us talking about like who you should have on a podcast. <laughs> I've been super lucky so far. Just just about everyone that I've asked has said yes at some point. Um, yeah, I'm actually and with this with this new format for me, like being able to to call people up. I know I've been I've been bugging Marcy for a while, but I don't think she reads her DMs. <laughs> but I would love to talk she, to her. Yeah, she'd be pretty good. Yeah, my, she's like a renaissance. Yeah, woman. my my mother in law used to vend next to her at tattoo shows back in the back in the day. So I've heard. Right on. Third stories. And I, I met her, you know, we, we vended across from her at Bulletproof for a few years. She owns Bulletproof now. I saw it. That's, that's going to be really interesting. I have yeah. no idea what that's going to be Bulletproof like. I didn't know Bulletproof was still around. I think it's rad. Um, I have a, Cole a, Foster. Cole Foster is, I would love to talk to him. I've I've asked. That's one where I got like a, a solid maybe. Like I've interviewed him before in text mm-hmm. and he was great. But it would be really cool to like get into all the shit that went down in Japan because he got in all that mess in Japan. Yeah, the be... people would listen to that. Yeah. yeah, I met him before. This is one of my my stories where I feel like a real cool guy. <laughs> like yeah. him and John Parker were out in front of this art gallery. Uh, Dead End was doing a show down there in Salinas, and Cole Foster had this stack of vintage drag racing photos. And he was like, uh, yeah, sharing them, like passing pictures around. It was cool as hell. But I was, I was so intimidated. I just like stood there, and like, whoa. I don't think I had any anything interesting to say. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be I've fun known, for sure. I haven't talked to Cole in probably two years at least. But I mean, I went out with him one night in Austin, and we got in a little trouble. Yeah. Um, but he he was always I knew him through Rob Fortier, who that would be a good interview as well. Um, he's, he was, he's always been super nice to me. Yeah, man. He's, yeah, I actually went to college with his ex-wife. Wow. Wow. Small world. Yeah. Um, trying to think who else would be great. People haven't heard Kobe. That's to me, that's the top. (laughs) You already got him. (laughs) Yeah. That was, that was really cool. I felt really, 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 really fortunate for that to all work out and the timing. He was, he was building a car up here. So it was just, just perfect. Awesome. Yeah, I met Cole through Rob Fortier at a. I think it was either the first or second time I went to Paso when it was still in Paso, mm-hmm. and I was 18 years old at the time, I think, and I got kidnapped, like literally kidnapped by a lowrider group. <laughs> Jesus. And I'm trying to think of the name of the car club. It was like a lowrider club. All these great big dudes. And they literally kidnapped me like that scene from American Graffiti. <laughs> and <clears throat> like two, they took me to a bar and got me drunk. And then they, they were, they took me right outside our hotel, which was that host hotel right there on the square. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was this purple Lincoln Zephyr that they called scrape. And I can't Terry, I can't think of the guy's name that built it, but it was like this fiberglass 41 Lincoln Zephyr. That was actually pretty hideous. And on one side it had like huge Boyd wheels. And on the other side it had uh sombrero hubcaps. <laughs> and those dudes were like, if you go steal those hubcaps, we'll let you go. And I was like, are you serious? And they're like, we'll let you go. You got to go steal the hubcaps. And they gave me a screwdriver <laughs> and I stole the hubcaps for them. And they let me go. Uh-huh. There you go. I committed a crime on the podcast. 
but I was 18 years old. First time I'd ever been to Paso. It was crazy. That was man. That that was the days back when Paso was still in Paso. That was an amazing show. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like nothing else. Big, yeah, I mean, just no matter how big it got, it didn't lose that feel. Yeah, yeah I was I was really yeah. fortunate to get to catch the tail end of that. It was so cool. Like even just driving down to Paso, you'd start seeing the show. You know, an hour outside of town on the freeway or on the side of the road for for us most yeah. of the time. I remember I went one year. I bought the five Riviera and kept it at Rob's house. Mm-hmm. And then my girlfriend, now wife and I flew in and then drove with Rob to Paso, but we drove with the shifters mm-hmm. and I took like 15 hours to get there. Cause everyone's car kept breaking down. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Anthony, like his throttle linkage broke on his carburetors and he ended up like tying a shoelace to the carburetor <laughs> and running it through the firewall and just holding the shoelace through the yeah. firewall. It was crazy <laughs> stuff like that. It was a good time. Uh, yeah. I don't know, man. I'm sitting here thinking of fun stories to tell, but <laughs> I don't feel like I'm feeling much air. <laughs> that 65 Rivy, was that the one on, was that on Barani Wires? That was another one. Okay. My first one um, was more lowrider style. Um, I bought it from Dan Collins, mm-hmm. which he'd be another in- interesting interview. And that car actually has a crate. The the one I bought from Dan Collins, this is good. All right. So I bought it from Dan Collins and then I kept it at Rob's house until we flew in and drove to Paso. And then after Paso, my girlfriend and I, now wife drove from Paso back to Norman, Oklahoma, where I was going to school mm-hmm. and going through Death Valley, it started overheating. And by the time we got to Vegas, it was just done, man. The radiator was all swollen and mm-hmm. <clears throat> it needed a new radiator. And we, I had no money left at this time. You know, I'm like 20 years old. I had my girlfriend on a road trip. The car's blowing up and we both like call our parents, you know, what are we going to do? And, uh, we stayed at the Paris hotel in Vegas. We got a room. We had enough money for one night. <laughs> And my girlfriend actually won enough money playing craps to buy us an airline ticket home. (laughs) Wow. And then we shipped the car. Once I got back to Norman, we shipped the car from the, uh, the parking garage to Norman and it had a little rust under the package tray. And so I was, you know, cleaning up the package tray, taking the carpet out of the trunk and all that stuff to get it all cleaned up. And a brick of cocaine (laughs) fell out. It was like, it was trapped between the metal bracing of the package tray and the cardboard shit that holds the package tray up. <laughs> and it was literally a brick of cocaine. And it, it had been there obviously a very, very long time cause it was green. And I'm like, Oh my God. And a really good friend of mine was a, a policeman in the Norman, Norman police department at the time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what to do. So I just called him and I was like, what do I do? And he's like, Oh man. So he like brings over, his partner and a drug sniffing dog and the whole thing and they go over the whole car and that's all they find <laughs> but i had gone i'd gone through ha- countless state lines <laughs> <laughs> i'd done all this shit and to think if i had gotten pulled over and the car searched for whatever reason i mean there's no way they would have bought that hey i just bought this car yeah. 
You know what I mean? It, it obviously wasn't Dan Collins either because, yeah. I mean, it had been there for a decade, decades, right? Sure. Like it had been there for a long time. And, uh, yeah, they ran, the police ran all these tests on it. It was cocaine. It was very, very old. And uh, I didn't get in any trouble, but I'm, I I made the right decision amazingly at that young age to, to call my buddy <laughs> because it, uh, yeah, that was it was crazy. That's wild. I was all worried Dan Collins was going to get in trouble. He didn't because it was it was so old. But yeah, at one point some drug lord had owned that car <laughs> and had that whole trunk stacked. That's and crazy. Left the yeah, yeah. That that particular Riviera, like that was always one of my favorite cars. I sold it like two or three years later, and I've I think I've had three sixty five since then. It's one of my favorite cars ever. It's such a great design. It's just so yeah perfect. That green Riviera with the Baranis on it, I loved that car. Yeah, I drove I drove that car every day for a year or two. It was my daily driver. It was fantastic. So I remember on the ham. I think right before the the Bulbardo's forum spinoff happened, there was a lot of back and forth about whether lowriders were appropriate to be on the ham. And I think I remember you posting to the Jalopy Journal around that time about the Riviera. Do you remember that that conversation about around then? A little bit. Did you ever feel um, like lowriders weren't welcome there? I I think it's a good traditional lowriders before you know crazy panel painting and gold plating and stuff like that became the norm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like those like the Barrio style like early sixties um, lowriders to me are just customs. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, like- I, I'm sorry. <laughs> My first old car was a 64 Impala with switches. Yeah. Yeah. 13 inch Dayton's. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I had a huge stereo in it. <laughs> Low riding was like really big in Texas, right? Yeah. I mean, it was basically started in El Paso. Uh, yeah. No one in California would admit that, but like the barrios of El Paso is where at least a lot of the early low riders came from. And you can see examples of that actually in some of the mid '60s Rod and Custom magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll call them customs, but it's you know some guy from just outside of El Paso with his Impala on a brake. That's cool. Yeah, I know the the tradition of uh, of cruising. They say it comes from the 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 tradition in El Paso. What's it, what's it called? Just the Pasado, I think. Where yep. people would, like line the streets and like dress up. People would walk down the middle, and they're you know guys trying to meet girls. And that yeah. tradition carried over into cars in Southern California is where people say like the cruising tradition came from. I don't know if it's true or not. I would imagine that cruising the the main hub in your town, trying to look for for companies, probably pretty common to the human race. But yeah, you know it's it's interesting about just the car culture as a whole. Like when I think. Early racing, I think Southern California. Mm-hmm. But in fact, if you go look at Ohio in the early 1900s, people were racing Model Ts, and you know that's where the banger aftermarket industry started is mm-hmm. Ohio and Indiana. So technically, those guys were doing it really way before Southern California was. But if you look at the, especially specifically industry of the time, World War II, when hot rodding really took off, just just after, you had the industrial guys on the East coast 
And so they, you know, they learn their skill set working on industrial pipes and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the West Coast, you had the aerospace industry, and those guys were working on aluminum aircraft riveting and, you know, really fine-tuned, beautiful work. And so they picked up a different set of a different skill set, which led to more refined hot rods. And so I think that happened a lot in just racing in general in that, you know, maybe it started in Ohio and the first guys were doing it there. But when it, once it got to California where those guys were in the aircraft industry and they had the skill set and the tools and the knowledge to build a more refined version of whatever was going on elsewhere, they did, I mean, they just did it better. Yeah, and I know like East Coast guys hate to hear that a lot of times, but <laughs> it's it's true. If you look at some of the historical cars that have survived and you look at the craftsmanship, you can tell when a car was done in Southern California. Yeah, it's it's kind of unique. Like if you look at the, not to take this too far off, but if you look at the population of Los Angeles from like 1930 to 1950, it explodes right after World War II. And that's like my, my grandfather was a carpenter from Arizona and he moved out to L.A. when he first got out of the service and then didn't like it there and moved back to Arizona. There's just, I think the economics of that has a huge impact on, on everything because people from all over the country were just shoved in this you know, urban area for the first time together and they've got money coming out of the war. And there's The industry is still you know, cranking from from switching over to, to supporting the war effort. So L.A. is sort of a, a geographically unique place at the end of World War II for that stuff to really explode. Yeah. And it just, I mean, I, I always think of the first time I saw Barney Navarro's um, Roadster. Because, I mean, that car's, I mean, it's been restored, but it's it's pretty close to how it was. And if you look at the craftsmanship on that car, there's not a whole lot of difference between that car and, like, what's coming out of Brizio's shop. Mm-hmm. Like, And that that's not a knock at all on Brizio, because that guy's one of the best in the world. That's Navarro was that good. And I mean, he's you know gas welding and everything else, but he was just so tenacious about detail that I don't I don't think any I mean there wasn't any of that on the East Coast. And some of, there's some East Coast hot rods that I love. I think back to that that what's that book called Cool Cars Square Roll Bars or something like that. <laughs> it's all East Coast hot rods. That that book has so many cool cars in it. But I mean, you can it's really when you see survivor cars that come from either coast that you can you know see the difference between what they were doing and i've always thought in my head i I mean i have no proof of this and and i'm probably full of shit but (laughs) i've always felt like it had a lot to do with the aircraft industry being based on the west coast and the east coast being you know the birth of the industrial revolution so it was much more industrial makes sense yeah and that that's beyond like the proportions of a channeled car versus a chopped car it was craftsmanship was a big difference in my opinion and you could also like in the in the 50s when indycar racing started getting really big it wasn't until the west coast guys got involved that those cars got really fast <laughs> I, I went to indy I, I used to go every year with my dad in fact i went every year i was alive until i was 15 or 16 until i started racing myself and then i didn't go back until last year i went with this deal i went with valvoline <laughs> and it was so rad to go through the museum again and just see all those historical cars I hadn't seen since I was a kid. And obviously I've been surrounded by historical hot rods for a long time, but I haven't been like an honest to goodness professional race car built in 1955 in a long time. And it was, you forget the standards that they, I mean, that they were capable of back then. Pretty insane. 
I think Winfield built one of those cars actually once. I think. Probably that guy's done everything. <laughs> yeah, that that asymmetrical car he built. Holy crap! I love that car. The yeah. silver one. I can't remember what it's called. Manta Ray is that it? Uh, Manta Ray is Jeffries, isn't it? Jeffries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah, man. I, yeah. One one thing I learned from doing podcasts is my recall sucks. <laughs> yeah, mine mine is awful. Yeah. yeah, I'm a lot more forgiving when people get stuff wrong in public. But yeah, it, it happens. I can like I can tell you like if you t- tell me a car, a lot of times I can tell you the month and year of the Hot Rod magazine it was in. Yeah, but I cannot tell you for the life of me of who built it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's weird. You mentioned uh, Brizio earlier, and that that jogged the memory. Um, when when I was first on the ham, it was, there was this pretty adversarial thing between traditional cars and like the the billet community. In fact, billet proof, you know, named after that rivalry. Um, I I've noticed now there's a lot more um, reverence for some of the builders like. Uh, like Boyd Coddington or like the uh, Brizio, I'd, I'd say was certainly tied up in the, the billet wheels thing, at least through the nineties. Um, do you feel like that's changed? Uh, I don't know if it has or not. Like I've, I've never been, certainly when I was young and I'd go to those NSRA events, I would be like, wow, this is boring. Mm-hmm. Like all the cars look the same. They're all guards red. They all have the same Boyd wheels. Um, and you know, when I first started the Jalopy Journal, I was actually working for Boyd. Mm. Uh, I did his website, his first one. Mm. And I worked for his son for a while as well. Um, but I never, like, I never looked at it so much as an us versus them once I grew older Mm -hmm. and a little bit more mature, I guess. Um, and I can only respect like some of the stuff, stuff Chip Foose does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love looking at it. But, like, I've never been one to even really want to own, like, this finely finished traditional customer hot rod either because I, I've just always been into more casual cars that you can drive and not worry about and enjoy, mm-hmm. whereas a car with perfect paint. Like, I have <clears throat> I have Lee Pratt's old shoebox, and I get so stressed out because I'm like, Fuck, I'm going to screw up Lee Pratt's cars. You know what I mean? I was watching you doing woodworking next to it on one of your videos. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, like... I just got back from Louisiana, we, the roundup in Louisiana, and I took Lee's car, and I hit a deer on the way there. Oh, in it. Jesus. And it, I got lucky. It didn't hurt the car bad at all, and I mostly fixed it already. But, like, there's this tiny little rock chip and a little dent in the hood, and I've just it's been just torturing me ever since. It's like, ah, oh, man, I can't do that work myself. I have to find somebody, you know, that I trust with body work. Um, I got some paint from Lee. You know what I mean? Like, and I love that car, and that's the only reason I own it. And that's probably the only car like that that I would own, mm-hmm. because I just don't like that stress. I just like casual cars that look fast and you can beat the hell out of without, you know, that feeling of guilt or anxiety behind it. Um, but to get back to what you were saying, I I think there are certainly guys out there that sort of resent the billet movement even though it's been dead for so long mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm i don't really put myself in that camp and most of the guys i know really they don't hate 
you know, contemporary hot rods at all. That's just not their thing. So, I, as far as Boyd goes, I, for what he, I mean, he did a lot of great stuff, obviously. Um, John Butera. John Butera hated my guts. <laughs> and I still respect everything that guy did. And the reason he hated my guts is because of that anti-billet movement. Because I think the ham, you know, especially back then, was sort of almost like a, a you know a pulpit for that kind of thing mm-hmm. um but I, you can go back and look at all of my posts from that period i I never really got too much into that yeah a lot of guys on the ham certainly did <laughs> yeah it's i the the comparison for myself is like there's bands like when you grow up punk rock that you have to write off because they're too cool for them <laughs> yeah like like yeah. the rolling stones and the beatles like oh man they suck when you're a kid and you grow yeah. up it's like I still, I, I'm not a Rolling Stones fan, but I, they got some good stuff. Like, Gimme Shelter is, a, is goddamn great, whether you like the band or not. And yeah. uh, I, I feel the same way with car builders. Like, when I was a kid, I was a little more adversarial. And then now, growing up, it's like, man, if someone puts their heart into something, I can at least appreciate it from there. And if I can be a little, yeah. um, I don't know, not challenged by someone doing better work than I could ever possibly hope to do. I can appreciate that for what it is too, even if it's not my my style completely. Yeah, I, I, man, I come from the same spot too. Because I mean, I'm a hack in the shop. So if someone like Chip Foose builds a suppository looking car <laughs> with no, you know, just just this smooth, big wheeled thing, I can't. I couldn't do that. Like, who am I to to shit it? So, I mean, I I get it. I mean, if I was Cole Foster and you know, there's a suppository sitting in front of me. I probably would be more prone to talk towards it, but I'm I'm just not, I'm not in a position to do that really. Yeah. I don't have any talent in the shop, so who am I? But I like there's a, <laughs> like when you go to a car show and you see a car that's proportionally wrong and mm-hmm. there's a lot of problems with it, but obviously the guy's very proud of it and it works hard. All my friends have code for that, and it's man, he put a lot of work into that one. <laughs> That's like the car version of "Oh, bless your heart." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that, that's that's one of the coolest things about Austin car people is there's not a lot of negativity in it. <laughs> but your your talk about music and bands, you really do need to interview Steve Wertheimer because that's I mean, the guy, he owns the Continental Club. He's, I mean, he is deep in the world world of music. Really good friends with a lot of people in the music industry. He'd be super interesting. I mean, he also owns Gary Howard cars, and that's somebody else in the Austin scene we haven't talked about is Gary Howard. You know, he passed away a few months ago. Um, he was really the guy that started the Austin car scene. And he did that by, he was he was from Iowa, and he was a really good body guy and a really good painter. And Jimmy Vaughn um, was wanting to build a, an early traditional custom. And he heard about Gary, and he went out there, and they sort of teamed up on their first car. And it, I mean, it, it was in every magazine back then. And that just sort of got people in Austin, you know, took notice of that car because it was Jimmy Vaughn's. And the next thing you knew, Steve was involved and Steve is great with people. And it just sort of took off. I'm, I'm, I basically live here with Steve mm-hmm. and Steve's around in the car scene because of Gary. So it was, it, it sucked when Gary passed. He was such a great guy and literally probably the best painter I've, I've ever seen. The guy was incredible. It's, it's weird. Cause I still don't believe he's gone. But like when this happened with the shoebox, 
my first thought was, I'm going to Gary's as soon as I get home. Oh. And it's like, shit. Yeah. So it was a bummer. They just did a a benefit for him, for his wife, uh, two weekends ago in a little town outside of Austin. And I was actually, I was out of town at the time, but apparently it was like one of those once-in-a-lifetime car events. Like, it was just perfect. Not a ton of people there, but enough. And all of Gary's cars were there, so it was beautiful. But, yeah, if if you're not familiar with Gary Howard's cars at all, do some research. He did all of Jimmy Vaughn's cars. There's a guy here that's in our, uh, Mike Young. He uh, he started a restaurant chain called Chewy's, um, but he did all of Mike Young's cars as well, and they're all, I mean, they're all just they're perfect, and they range anywhere from early '50s customs to like mid '60s low riders. Or just every one of them's bitching. Cool, yeah, definitely know uh, Jimmy Vaughn's cars. That's that's cool stuff. But what else you got? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping you're editing out all this dead air. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> like I said, I'll, I'll pull it together. I think you'll be you'll be happy with how, how continuous it sounds if I can do a decent <laughs> job. <laughs> There's been some of these where it like we'll like pause in the middle of the interview and it'll run off to something else for a long time, and we'll come back. And the only, it's all fine, except for every once in a while we'll make references to the marker. It was like, oh yeah, we're two hours into us, and my recorded podcast is like 45 minutes. It's like, oh, yeah. God, what must have happened behind the scenes there? Yeah, I, I try not to plan too much. I try to do enough you know, background research so I have an idea of what I want to talk about, but I try not to make it sound like a canned interview or something like that because those are yeah. super boring, too, where it's just a and a It feels like you're getting quizzed if you're being asked the questions and you're not participating if you're the one asking them. Yeah. I, I listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, not religiously, but every now and then, but I've always felt he did a pretty good job with like conversational, <clears throat> like he'll have, you yeah. know, his, some of his podcasts are crazy long, um, but he does a really good job of just, he gets, he doesn't ask any hard questions, which sometimes gets frustrating, but uh, they're always conversational, which is cool. Yeah. I, I yeah, really, I, I can't listen to it regularly. It's you know I like probably every twentieth episode that they'll put out, but the ones that I listen to are fantastic. He's really good yeah. at being curious and not judging yeah. people. That's exactly right. Curious without judging. Yeah, well, I'm trying to think of any other interesting tidbits I've got. <laughs> <laughs> My life is so boring. I'm a hermit. I'm really appreciative. Really, it's I I tell you like. I, my knowledge of car stuff outside of California is very limited. So hearing more and more about Texas is really cool. Yeah. There's some, there's some weird old history. There's, there's actually a, uh, 32, uh, cabriolet that it's owned by a car collector on the East coast somewhere now, but it started its life in San Antonio at the air force base. And there's all this like crazy drag, history behind this car like it you know don garlitz raced it and all this crap like i I don't even know if any of it's verified but the car is now i've been trying to buy this car for like 15 years and he he won't sell it but it's such a bitching car and it's it's from texas um but there's lots of little stories wertheimer the guy that owns continental club he has a a little early roadster that's called the waco kid and that's it's been a hot rod in Texas since the 1950s, early 50s, unrestored. Steve still drives the hell out of it. Um, but there's lots of and Tweety Bird, the car that Keith Tardell just restored. Mm-hmm. That guy would be an interesting interview as well. He's older, 
I mean, he, he used to take this car. It's, it's weird. It's the car that's in the background of like every famous hot rod photo ever, <laughs> but was never in the foreground. So he went to like every car show in this car from Texas. And he was in California a lot. Went to like all the NHRA Nats. Um, and like no one ever took a picture of Tweety Bird really, but it's always in the background. So you'll see like the Hillborn Streamliner at the Tulsa Drag Strip. And it's like the famous last photo of the Hillborn Streamliner ever. And in the background, hey, there's Tweety Bird. <laughs> and uh, so the car has been around forever and Keith restored it last year. Um, I think it's going to be out in the Rotter's Journal soon, I think. But yeah, that's a cool little car. The Rotter's Journal and the Jalopy Journal kind of have an interesting relationship. So Steve Coonan, the guy that owns the Rotter's Journal and started it, mm-hmm. he, he started the Rotter's Journal almost to the day when I started the Jalopy Journal. Wow. And uh, I remember I went to the NHRA Nats in Oklahoma City. I was going to school in Norman, Oklahoma. And he was like introducing the Rotter's Journal at the time. And I had started the Jalopy Journal that month as well. And we're just like eyeballing each other, you know. We're now, we're we're super close now. He's one of my best friends. I love that guy to death. Um, but so we've just, it's it's funny because we just sort of like supported each other through the years. To the point like some people think that the Jalopy Journal and the Rodgers Journal are owned by the same guy. But we're just buddies. So we've always sort of supported each other. We want to do a book together, which hopefully we'll do this year. We were, we wanted to do one because we both just celebrated last year our 25th anniversary. Mm-hmm. So it would have been rad to have like done a book then. But he's in the middle of moving, and we just we couldn't get it done. But hopefully, I'd, what we want to do is like a book that um, features some of the old build threads of the ham and stuff. Oh, cool! Yeah, be kind of fun. He's a good dude. He's he's so much like me. It's crazy. We both give sort of weird initial impressions because we're both pretty shy um so so we both like the people don't that the people that don't know us think that we're very similar and we're not all that similar but we just give the same first impression (laughs) so there's always good jokes around that i always i always tell steve that like oh you've only talked to him once he probably hates you (laughs) (laughs) because he's shy he's like socially awkward and i have bad social anxiety yeah. And so, like, first impressions are often, often that guy's an asshole. You know what I mean? Like, he didn't say a word to me. <laughs> in reality, we're, like, caught up in our own self-inadequacies. <laughs> There's a lot of anxiety in the car world. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's, I don't know, we, we spend most of our time with our heads down looking at something that we can understand mechanically, very simply, like, the, this is physics. This is physics used to make something. This is the thing that it can do with that. Outside of that, we we get a little lost. Oh, I'm I'm a, I have like gnarly social anxiety. They used to like at car shows they'd have like these ham gatherings, mm-hmm. and people get so mad at me for not going to them. I'm like I I physically could not do it. Yeah. Like there's no I would be throwing up. I I mean literally there's no way I could do that. And even even still like. I'll, like I, I love to go shoot cars, and I'll find some car I really want to shoot. In fact, this this past summer, I, uh, my son and I have been restoring this old travel trailer, and I decided I was going to take like a week, and just drive through the middle of the country and do photo shoots of cars. And planning it, I'm all good. You know, I even know like I shot Nick's car in Nebraska. I know Nick pretty well. I was still so freaking nervous. 
Like, and then if I'm shooting some guy's car I don't know, oh, God, I'm a mess. I've just, I've never handled social situations very well. And I, I don't I don't know if that comes from being stuck behind a computer too much. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a weird into it. Like, I'm sure people that listen to the podcast hear me stutter and get nervous and all, all sorts of stuff like that. And this is, like, very not normal for my normal uh routine like calling people cold or texting them and trying to get them to, to have an hour conversation <laughs> yeah but doing vending with my mother-in-law like even if you're like anxious and shy and nervous you have to just like push past it somehow and talk to people yeah. and sell stuff and count change and so i'm i'm really grateful for those years in the you know in the swap meet learning how to do that yeah and even you know being able to fake it a little bit it's it's closer than than nothing. <laughs> I'm like, when we do events like the hand drags or what have you, I'm like, I'll, I'll get really, really nervous on the way up there. I'll get really, really nervous the day before. And usually by, by noon or so, I'm fine after I've been working for a while, everything's cool until someone says something complimentary. And then I'm like a fucking mess. <laughs> yeah. The few times someone's mentioned the podcast out in public, I just sort of the same thing, like, huh? And then I, I it's this really weird feeling, like I feel a little spied on. <laughs> like, wait, yeah. you listen to me, and I don't didn't listen to you. Like, it's the most bizarre yeah. like head trick. But it's like Thank I know you. exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Or something that I wrote. It's like, thanks, but what? How do you know that about me? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm for years I didn't allow pictures of me on the internet at all. Yeah. And then and in fact I think a, I did a woodworking video on the garage journal it was the first time and I didn't even realize I was doing it until it's too late, you know. I've avoided that too. Well, we were doing a I had a friend come out who was taking some pictures of my wife's car. Um hopefully for a, a magazine thing. If not, I don't want to like oversell it, but <laughs> he was shooting uh the license plate, like the the trunk of her car cuz it's got some like panel paint around there. And he asked, like, is it okay if we put the plate in or should we, like, censor it, put, like, the magazine logo over it? And it's, you know, maybe 30 years ago someone could have pulled the plate and found out where we live. But now, like, if we're tagged in it, like, it, it's very, very straightforward to find out, like, whose yeah. car it is, where it came from exactly, and, and all that. It, that's changed a lot. Yeah, it has. Like, I... I think with this, even with, with my podcast, I've tried to make myself be a, more of a part of it, like against my own instincts, because you need like a, I feel like you need a narrator, you need a driver, you need some person that's pulling the thing along. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I get, I get way too in my head about stuff like that. Like, uh, do, do you know, uh, Mike Lavella? He did Gearhead Magazine. A, a couple yeah, of that guy's games. a legend. Yeah, that guy's a legend. Yeah. I like, I feel like Gearhead and which is going with someone else now, but the gearhead of, of his era was really him. You know, it's like his thoughts, his idea. These are the bands that he found. This is the thing that he went to. And that's really cool. Like it's, yeah. but it very, uh, very clearly had a voice at the front of it. You know, I think just his little letter to the editor at the beginning, like set the, the stage when you go through the magazine, this is the person. And then these are the things. I, I yeah. think sometimes it works. Although if someone just wants attention, then that that doesn't work. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I know, like, old Thrasher magazines, the same thing. 
Yeah. Whoever was the editor at the time, it was this. It was his personality through the whole book. I think Rogers Journal is a lot like that too, although people don't realize it. I mean, Coonan does an editorial to start it, but just the cars he picks, I can tell. Yeah. You know, he picked it. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, that's that's one thing that's come up with all this streaming content these days. Is like there's no person making decisions. It's like an algorithm or just a you know, luck of the draw sometimes. Yeah. And like a, a curated feed, like some of the, like the there's like horror movie the, the subscription service services and stuff like that, where someone's made you like a playlist of movies. Yeah, that's really important. I mean, it's pretty cool sometimes to be challenged by something that's not your own perspective, but where someone can make a case. Like, you know, like like Mike, I think. Uh, God, he has one one episode where it's like an unlikely band with an unlikely musician and an unlikely show. It's like together at last, and uh, God, I'm trying to remember what what issue that that is. It was cool to have someone like sort of forcing you, you know, with their their magazine or their little piece of reality to be like these are related, and you should appreciate yeah. them instead of just finding them randomly or through an algorithm on Instagram where it's calculating what it thinks you might like yeah it, it sort of reminds me which this wasn't done with any grace or finesse at all but a few years ago on the jalopy journal i did a feature of wertheimer's tail dragger custom with my model a coupe with the ferrari 575 marinello so like the super modern supercar mm-hmm. with the traditional hot rod and a traditional custom <laughs> and like how the ferrari was sort of this weird mix of the two it went over like a lead bri- lead balloon, but I always loved it, and I've tried to reproduce that. Um, I've always wanted to do like a 32 Roadster with the Porsche 911, yeah. just because they're in a lot of ways they're so similar, just yeah. a ubiquitous go fast machine. But I've always enjoyed that contrast quite a bit. Even like my woodworking stuff, this this workbench I'm working on, a lot of it was inspired by Tom Sachs. And if you're unfamiliar with Tom Sachs, he's this like artist sculpture guy and he has a fascination with NASA. And so what he'll do is he'll build certain NASA objects out of common objects. So like he'll just, he'll build, I mean, he's built a space shuttle out of plywood before and, and it's like half scale, like it's huge. And the way he does it, it's just, it's all plywood and resin and just some of the stuff he does, like he'll paint a sheet of plywood before he cuts it and sands it and everything else. And then he'll put resin over the whole thing once he's finished to preserve all the scuffs and sanding marks and everything else, just to show that contrast of, you know, NASA technology object with these like little kid like materials. I've always, I've always liked shit like that. Oddly, I've never gotten gotten into the rat rod thing, but I guess it's not all that different somehow. <laughs> I think what bothered me about the rat rod thing, and I, it didn't bother me because if people enjoy it, I'm have at it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. But the reason I never focused on on the Jalopy Journal was it, it. A lot of times, it just seemed so effortless, like they didn't suffer for it. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. when I see some guy that's you know worked his ass off spending as little money as possible to make a Model A Roadster look like a Model A Roadster would have looked in 1948. To me, that like had a lot of merit behind it, and I enjoyed it way more than just throwing skull and crossbones and leaving rust and everything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know that one way is better than the other. I just know which way I like better. 
Yeah. So I don't I don't think that rat rod argument is very legitimate anymore. I think those sides have been chosen and and everything else and they don't really mix as much anymore. But there was a period there like on the ham where, you know, reported post every day, this guy's posting rat rods. <laughs> and and then you're forced to define what's a rat rod and what's not and man, you can piss some people off doing that. <laughs> so thankfully that yeah. time's come and gone. Yeah, it's that's touchy. Like if if this is the best that someone can do and they're they're working for it and it looks rough, I'm fine with that. But yeah, if you're intentionally making it look worse or sticking a bunch of yeah, I mean it's the same stuff with with the import tuner crowd. Like if you're just covering it with crap from Craigan, it's not interesting. Yeah, yep, I'm with you. Funny side note, my wife is a uh, Fast and the Furious fanatic. Yeah, yeah. Her 40th birthday was Fast and the Furious themed. In fact. All right, so she like bought. Uh, what were the two actors? Paul. Uh, was he passed away in a Porsche? I can't think of his name. But she got life 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 size cutouts of the two actors. Um, what's the ball name? God damn. Vin Diesel. Yeah, Vin Diesel and Paul, the other guy, the blonde headed guy. Mm-hmm. He got she got life size cutouts of them both for her party, <laughs> and we rented out this local bar. And she invited all of her friends as a private party. And at like 1 a.m., they're closing it down. And this kid comes in, and he starts, like, bum-rushing the cardboard cutouts that I'd paid 50 bucks for on Amazon, right? <laughs> and I'd had too much to drink, so I'm pissed. And so I find myself standing up for the honor of Vin Diesel's cardboard cutout. <laughs> and I, I'm now, I've been lifetime banned from the bar because of it. Huh? <laughs> in my life, man. I don't even like Fast. I mean, I guess I do, but yeah, that's a pretty good one. Yeah, they, those movies hit a weird place for me because it's the the stuff that was happening around me when I was in in high school or middle school. And yeah, there's no debating that the, the shot of nitrous thing where they, they go through the whole engine, they show all the moving components. That's really cool. <laughs> so rad, dude. Yeah. Oh, well, some of the best car scenes ever in those movies, dude. Yeah. Even the shitty ones had good car scenes, like that one in Japan. In the parking garage, that was awesome. <laughs> or Vin Diesel, like, pirouetting over, you know? That that Dodge Charger, that car is actually in Dripping Springs, which is where I am right now. Like, the one from the movie. Wow. Yeah, my old neighbor owned it. <laughs> I live in this... So, I live in Dripping Springs, which is about 15 miles outside of Austin. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. Within, I'd say, three square miles of me are Jesse James, Alex Jones, which he's, yeah, um, the guy that started Patron Tequila, which is, I guess, Jesse's father-in-law now, um, and then the guy that owns the Fleshlight Company. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, dude, it's strange. And this is, like, it sounds like, as I go over that list, it sounds like this is a wealthy area. It's not. It's just an old country. Like, we live down a country road. So it's not like some crazy wealthy area. In fact, I think we have the lowest taxes in all of Texas. Maybe that's why. And then, like, lately there's been all these car people have moved in. Chris Casney, which, God, he would be a fascinating interview. Do you know Chris at all? Yeah, I think I met him um, a long time ago. I, I definitely know who he is and the, the stuff that he built. I, I think I follow him on, on Instagram. Yeah, that'd be really cool. So Chris Casney is the most talented person I know. As far as building a car, he can do anything himself and he does everything himself interior paint and body mechanics everything and if he doesn't know how to do it he can learn how to do it within like in a crazy amount of time 
And I, I don't understand like how he does it. But so we built our shops at the same time using the same metal building company. Mm-hmm. And the metal building company hated me because of Chris Kasney. Because Chris <laughs> would be like, hey, you clocked that hardware wrong. You need to get up there and fix it. And so they would leave his place and come to mine, and our buildings are basically the same. Mm-hmm. And like, like I don't know if they expected me to be the same or what have you, <laughs> but it's gotten to the point now to where like I started woodworking, and he's like crazy master woodworker, right? And every time I'm out there working in the shop, I think, oh, Chris Casney's going to see this, man. I can't like I'm going to have to hide it or I'm going to have to fix it. <laughs> and he's got this like, he's he's fascinating because he he he's got to be like clinically. Uh, obsessive compulsive mm-hmm. or he's definitely clinically smart as shit like he's crazy smart and just the talent it's he's he would be crazy interesting to interview i think and I, he didn't get a lot of press but i would i would put any of his cars against anybody's as far as fit and finish and style and everything else that dude he lives uh, probably three miles from me less than that as a crow fries but crow flies but mm-hmm. I mean, the country roads are all windy, but I mean, he lives pretty close to me. He, uh, he's a good dude. But yeah, this little area just outside of Austin, like Jimmy lives out here. Lee lived here before he moved back to California. Um, it's a cool little country area where just all these car folks and then otherwise weird folks live. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You, you got my, my gears turning for all the, the people out of state. I got to hit up and call. <laughs> I think that conversation alone would be interesting for people here. Yeah. Hopefully, you got enough. Oh yeah, man. I, um, so I saw. So you've got uh, Lee Pratt's. Uh, how old year is that? Is it a forty-nine. Forty-nine. Okay. I'm bad with boards in general. I, yeah. Um, what else do you have right now? And what are you are you working on anything new? Lee Pratt's shoebox. I've got my Model A coupe that Tardell built. And then I have my 38 coupe, which is the car that kind of started the Jalopy Journal. And about, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, I took the 38 apart. Mm-hmm. And the idea was it was sort of it was sort of half built traditionally and half built to be low. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like we, I took it apart, and Keith was gonna take the. I had an independent front on it. Keith took the, that out and put in a straight axle. And then we're like, well, we're under here. We should probably put a 57 Ford nine inch in it. So we've done that. And it's like I have this I had this crazy small block Chevy in it and we're gonna put that in a Bonneville car, maybe. And instead we're gonna put a blown Y block in this car. So the last few years we've been trying to piece together that motor and just slowly but surely put that car back on the road. But it's like it's behind me right now in Jack Stands. Um but yeah, that's it. I've got other stuff in pieces, but that's that's yeah. it as far as complete car. Cool. The shoebox was one of those deals. Like I think I had done feature articles for myself and other publications three or four separate times on Lee's shoebox. And then he decided to sell it. And I'm like, I mean, I can't imagine someone else owning it. Yeah. And I could, I could not afford to buy it at the time, but I didn't have much of a choice. So I bought it. <laughs> That's such a cool car. It's super stressful to own, but I love it. Well, cool. I, I suppose, man, I could keep talking to you all day, but I, I suppose I should let you uh, get back to work eventually. Right on. Yeah. But man, thank you so much. This was really fun. I really enjoyed this. Thank right you. Right on. Cool. Yeah. It was fun. Well, all right. That's it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, thank you so much to Ryan for your time. 
I had a great time recording this one. It really meant a lot. This was pretty cool. And I have some exciting stuff coming up on the podcast. So, you know, uh, subscribe, review, blah, 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 all that stuff that podcasters say. (laughs) So uh, I'll catch you next time. And we'll see what 2020 holds or some mystical New Year's stuff like that. (laughs) Thanks.